Well, it is extremely good to be with you today, and uh, we will be finishing up in Luke chapter 4. And as we are ending the first service and getting ready to go into our break this morning, I just felt like I was under an extreme burden. Um, I think that uh, the devil in particular doesn't really want me to preach this message. I don't generally think of those things in that specific of terms, but I will pray before we begin, and if I could ask you to pray for me silently throughout, I would appreciate it, because there's definitely um, some trouble in my spirit about it, but I know that it's from the evil one. And uh, I think it's because... Today we are going to uh, talk about demons. We're going to talk about Jesus' dealings with demons. We're in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. And I I did a lot of studying for this um, because there were some things that I didn't really fully understand about this passage and there's probably still some questions that I have but the Bible says that God's ways are past finding out and then he also says seek and you will find so both of these things must be understood as coexisting truths and so we will do our best to um understand the Word of God by the Spirit of God. But before we read this morning's passage, let us go before the throne of grace and implore His presence here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that You would be known of us this morning. We pray that You would bind Satan, keep him away from this room, for he has no power over those of us who have been redeemed. And if there is anyone who has not yet been redeemed, may today be the day that they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who has the power of everything on this earth and in heaven and in earth below. We pray this in Jesus' name, the risen Christ. Amen. Well, if you remember, last time we spoke, we talked about how Jesus went into the synagogue and he was given the opportunity to read and he read from the prophet Isaiah. And in that prophecy, it talked about the coming Messiah. And it gave some very specific characteristics about the coming Messiah. And then after Jesus read it, he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And the people, rather than rejoicing that this Messiah that they've been waiting for for hundreds of years, thousands of years, rather than rejoicing that He was here, they cast Him out of the synagogue and they sought to throw Him over a cliff. And He passed by in the midst of them. Now I kind of wonder, did God allow him to become invisible 
for that brief time so that he could get through that mob? That seems to be a pretty uh, logical explanation because if he passed in the midst of the mob, then surely there would have been people that would try to grab him. But whatever way he got through this mob, he gets through this mob. And if it was up to you and me, just from our human perspective, we would say, well, maybe I should take a break. Maybe I should be quiet. Maybe I should stop saying what I'm saying to get these people mad. But that's not what Jesus does. It says, starting in verse 31, and if you want to keep notes, uh, my theme today is that Jesus continues to boldly proclaim the truth. And this first heading under that is we're going to see Jesus rebuke a demon. And it says in verse 31 of Luke 4, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, this is Jesus, and taught them on the Sabbath days. Now he had just been teaching on the Sabbath day, and he got him kicked out of a synagogue, but he comes down to Capernaum, and what does he do? He goes back into the synagogue and begins to continue teaching the Word of God. And his disciples, you'll remember, in the book of Acts, they follow his example. For when, I think, uh, I, I, forget when I, I forget when it was. Exactly, but there were a couple different times. When the apostles were let out of jail, and you would think they would go and run and hide. But they don't. They go stand in the middle of the courtyard proclaiming the Christ crucified. After they'd already been whipped, after they'd already been told not to speak in His name, they are proclaiming Him. And they are following the example of their Savior as we see in this passage. And it says, And He came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at His doctrine, for His word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And the devil had thrown him in the midst. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, and hurt him not. Now, I want to look at this, and I want to say this, that looking at this first phrase here, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Now, you know, it's kind of interesting that they would say this, because Jesus even said, do what the Pharisees tell you to do. For they sit in the seat of authority over you, do what they tell you to do, but don't practice what they practice. So he's talking about people that at least, in an intellectual way, were delivering the truth. But Jesus delivers the truth in a different way. He delivers it in power. 
And why is that? Because the words that he is bringing forth from the Old Testament, from the prophets, the words that he is speaking to the people are words that he wrote. He's the author. When the word comes from the author, it has more power. Because the author knows the full truth of his words. And then it says, he's teaching, and in the synagogue there was a man which had the spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? Now I want to point out something here. Jesus does not approach this man and say, what are you doing here? Or have a direct confrontation with this demon of his own volition. He doesn't walk up to the demon-possessed man and deal with this right away. The demon addresses Jesus. Why? Because the very presence of Jesus tells that demon he doesn't have much time. The very presence of Jesus tells the darkness that it has to flee. And then he says, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out and hurt him not. This demon knew who Jesus was. And Jesus would not allow this demon to speak for him. Why? Because he wanted to show his power over the demon. Jesus wanted people to believe him at his word and to show that his word was more powerful than that of a demon. This is also one of the passages that for me underscores the truth and the importance of embracing the truth of a literal six days creation. And you may wonder why I'm bringing this up. But it's this. In Hebrews 11, it says that by the word of God were the heavens and the earth created. And that they came from nothing. And this same God that spoke the world into existence is the God that's standing before this demon-possessed man. And at his word, things happen. When Jesus said for this demon to leave, it didn't take a week to think about it. It didn't say, come back in three days and maybe I'll be God. No, it left. Because that's the power of the God with whom we have to do. When Jesus speaks, things happen. The world came to be in all of its glory because Jesus spoke it into existence. He could have taken one day to do it. He chose to take six and to rest the seventh to give us a pattern of how to work here on this earth. But he could have taken one. Because that's his power. I, I was reading a little bit about 
some of the Jewish traditions for casting out demons. And, and they had these long, drawn-out processes for how they sought to accomplish this. But Jesus doesn't mess with that. He just commands the demon to leave, and it does. And the demon knew that that was what Jesus was going to do because he feared being destroyed by the Son of God. Why? Because even before the foundations of the world, God had a plan. A plan that sent the demons that rebelled against God to hell. And a plan that had Jesus coming to this earth to live a perfect life so that he could die on the cross of Calvary and rise again the third day to procure victory over sin and death. Another interesting thing is the demon says, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? Now some people say that, that there might have been a plurality of demons in here. And certainly we know that there is at least one case where there was. Because Jesus asked the name of the demon and the demon said, my name is Legion. For we are many. But in this case... I think from my study that it seems to appear that he was talking about the man in whom he indwelled. See, the demon thought that in order for God to destroy him, to send him out of the man, the man would have to be hurt. And the reason I think this is the case is because you see what Luke writes at the end of this portion we just read. Jesus said, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. Remember that this is a doctor, a physician that is writing this. Someone who is very familiar and very knowledgeable about the human condition as it pertains to physically. And so it's significant that Luke says here, that the devil came out, that the demon came out of him and hurt him not. So I just want to look at a brief passage by way of cross reference, talking again about the power of the Word of God. Hebrews four, twelve and thirteen. Hebrews four, twelve and thirteen. If somebody could look that up and read that, I would appreciate it. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to. The Word of God is quicker and more powerful than any two-edged sword. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the radio program Unshackled, but I like to listen to it. It's a radio drama from um, the Pacific Garden Mission. 
And if you want to listen to it, you can go to oneplace.com, I believe, and listen to it every week. Or um, you can subscribe to it on iTunes so that you can have it delivered to you. And the reason that I bring this up is because I listen to that show every week, and it's just so amazing to see how God uses His Word to bring people to Himself. Oftentimes there's people that witness to the people in the story and tell them of their need for salvation. But many times it's not till years after that happens when one of them picks up a Bible and starts reading and God leaps off the page because God's Word is powerful. That's why it's never old. That's why you always find something new. That's why even if you read it every year, which I recommend that you do read it every year, you will still find new reasons to rejoice in the person of God. And so as we see this, God's word is powerful and Jesus showed it. He rebuked the demon. Even though the demon was acknowledging who he was. We talked a little bit about this earlier. That, or, or I actually I heard a pastor talking about it before we came in. We were listening on the radio. And he was saying that it's possible to have intellectual assent to who Jesus is. And even to what he did. But if you don't believe it for yourself, if you don't claim the promise for yourself, if you don't thank the Lord for dying for your sins and ask Him to take over your life, it doesn't mean anything. Because you have to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise in order to be ready for the next coming of our Lord and Savior. And the Bible says in James that the demons believe and tremble. They don't have an opportunity for redemption. But we do. How wonderful that is. And then continuing on in our passage, Jesus' popularity begins to grow. And you know, I, I, I continue to be amazed by that, almost afresh as I'm reading through this. Because he did not have social media. He didn't have radio. They didn't have regular newspapers to my knowledge. But yet somehow the works of God were communicated. And his word spread. And it says this in verse 36. And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves saying... What a word is this? For with authority he commanded the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about, and he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. So, Jesus goes from this confrontation with a demon, this highly spiritual confrontation, and He goes in to Simon's house. We know from other passages where this is referred to that this is Simon Peter, His disciple. 
And Simon's mother-in-law is lying sick of a fever. And I, I heard from one scholar's observation that the, the way that it's written seems to indicate that this was a recurring situation for her, that she had fevers often, that she was weakened by them. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left. Again, there's no passage of time here. It's not like when the doctor says, take two of these and call me in the morning. No, because this is the great physician. The great physician doesn't waste any time. He rebukes the fever. And it leaves. And I love this reaction. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. You know, often when we preach the gospel, we talk about what Jesus can do for us. And, and well, we should. He does great things. But I'm reminded of the words of John F. Kennedy in one of his inaugural addresses. And please don't mistake me, I'm not a John F. Kennedy fan. But I appreciated the words of this phrase. He said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I think that as much as we rejoice in what God has done for us and how we've been brought out from the mire and how we couldn't have done it for ourselves, we also need to encourage people to not just ask, what can God do for me, but what can I do for God? And Peter's mother-in-law gets it. She realizes that she wasn't just healed for her benefit. And she ministers to Jesus as a thank you. Are you thankful for what Jesus has done for you today? And if so, how has that impacted your life? I'm asking myself the same question. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not putting myself on a plane above you. I'm asking myself the same question. What are we doing for the Jesus who did so much for us? Can we look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Died for them and rose again. 
You see, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are no longer living for ourselves. It's not just about what works to make me happy or me comfortable. It's about what Jesus has called us to do. Now, I want to be very careful because we need balance in all things. Some people spread the false teaching that that if you're interested in something and, and if you're enjoying something, then it must not be the will of God because the will of God requires sacrifice. Yes, the will of God requires sacrifice, but guess what? God made you. He gave you your interests and your desires and your aptitudes. So don't be afraid of them. Don't be ashamed of them, but ask how you will use them as directed by the Spirit of God. As we continue on, Jesus continues to heal. And this is where we kind of get into some of those passages like in John where it says, many, these things are written that you might believe, but many other things were written that if they were all written down, not even the world itself could contain the books. And this is one of those general uh, passages in Luke Four, forty to 44 it says now when the sun was setting all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him and he laid his hand on them and healed them and devils came out of many crying out and saying thou art Christ son of God and he rebuking them suffered them not to speak for they knew that he was the Christ and when it was day, he departed into a desert place, and the people saw him, and he came unto them. And they came unto him, and he stayed them, or stayed him, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. First of all, there's significance in this first phrase. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had sick with diverse diseases brought them unto Him. Why is this? Because at the sunset was the end of the Sabbath. And so it was the first opportunity for many of these people to come to Jesus because they didn't want to transgress the Sabbath. And again we see these devils coming out and I kind of struggled with this in some ways because I know that Paul later in Philippians says it doesn't matter how Christ is preached only that He is preached but we know that they, the devils didn't have any intent to preach the truth of Christ. They only wanted to make trouble for Him. We know that Jesus knew there was a time for everything so that gradually He would reveal Himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that the people had some wrong ideas about why He came. Some people thought that He would rescue the children of Israel from Rome. That, that His would be an earthly kingdom. There was even a time after the feeding of 5,000 when they sought to make Him king, so He went away. 
And again, from a human perspective, you wonder at least for a fleeting moment, why couldn't he just become king that way? And not have to suffer the death of a criminal. And the answer is simple. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. For thousands of years, the people of Israel sacrificed animals on their altars. And those animals were a picture of Jesus' love and sacrifice for us, but they were only a picture. They were not sufficient. But the Bible says in Hebrews that we have a high priest that went into the Holy of Holies once for all. And that He intercedes for us today. He's sitting at the right hand of God today. And when I make a mistake, when you make a mistake, when we sin, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, Jesus stands up. and says to his father, Father, I have prayed for that. Father, it's been dealt with at the cross. And God looks through his son to us and says, you are perfect and complete in Jesus. Praise be to God Almighty. The Bible says, if the Son, therefore, shall set you free, you will be free indeed. You know, as great as it was that Jesus did these physical miracles, what He did spiritually is so much more important. Remember when He healed the paralytic who was dropped through the roof of the house and the Pharisees were probably mad because they had roof thatching all over their clothing but he says son before he heals him he says son your sins are forgiven and they say only God can forgive sins and then he proves to them that he is God, or at least to many around. I don't know. I know that most of the Pharisees continue to ignore him. But he proves his power by saying, rise up and walk. And what's funny about this is there's another passage where he tells a lame man to rise up and walk, and the man takes up his bed and he's walking through the town, and, and the people who are there, the Pharisees who are there, who know that he's been lame for 30 years, say, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? It doesn't even matter to them that this guy that's been laying at the pool of Bethsaida for 30 years, years is walking he's standing before them and all they care about is his bed God cares a whole lot more about your soul than he does about your bed 
My question to you today is, have you trusted Jesus? Have you trusted the one whose very voice calmed the sea? The one who cast demons out of men? The one who healed Peter's mother-in-law so that she could be effective for him? Do we really take time to comprehend that this is the same God who said, let there be light? And there was. Because when God says it, it's true. So if God has a hold of your life today, know that He will never let go. For Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, in my humanity, I leave some tasks unfinished. I'm not all that faithful sometimes. I forget things. I forgot something this morning. But God never forgets. Unless He chooses to. This is the great paradox of God. And I'll close with this. Do you realize that the God who never forgets you, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you, also said, I will cast your sins as far away as the east is from the west. So in a sense, he's better at remembering and forgetting than we are. Because we tend not to forget when people do wrong against us. But if God has given us grace, so must we, so must we give grace to others. May God show you His grace this week, and may you be vessels of grace to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the power of Your Word. Thank You for being here with me today and for all these people here that I'm so blessed to call brothers and sisters. Thank You for the opportunity to be among them once a month, and I pray that You would bless them and bless the work here in Holland, that You would bring more people to the cross. Pray that if there be any today that do not know You, that they would do business with You today. That they would realize that as the Creator of the universe, You still want a personal relationship with us. I praise You for that. I'm so excited about it. In Jesus' name, Amen.